I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. To my unborn baby, a baby is a miracle sent from above. A tiny package all wrapped up in love with 10 tiny fingers and 10 tiny toes and sweet little cheeks and a cute button nose all of God's grace My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind crime on the continent, as always, Gerard Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. And today... We're talking about caesarean kidnappings. That's right. You didn't hear me incorrectly. Caesarean kidnappings are also known as fetal abductions. These involve the forced removal by means of a crude caesarean section of an unborn child from its, from its mother. It may or may not involve the subsequent death of the mother. And between 1987 and 2010, at least 21 incidents of this type of crime occurred throughout the world. Gerard, I have one question to start off. WTF. Mm. Yeah, I think this is perhaps one of the most <clears throat> bizarre kinds of uh, crimes for just so many different reasons. Uh, the motive behind it, of what happens, and, you know, it's it's a, it's not something of worth in, in the traditional sense. You know, it's, it's a child as a human life, not typical reasons of why people are stealing things because they have a financial element to it. So very complex and, of course, a very, very strong psychological motive behind driving this particular crime. There have been a number of incidents all over the world. Mm. Oh, do, do, have you have these crimes been located to particular areas of around the world? Where have we seen the most? I mean, we're going to discuss two cases mm. from South Africa today. Is this fairly scattered around the world that we're seeing this? Again, like a lot of these kind of unusual crimes, it's difficult for people. People don't really keep accurate statistics. Sure. Um, so probably the most of them that we've heard of uh, would be in the United States. Uh, but again, that might just be because of, of better record keeping in, in the United States compared to other parts of the world. But sure. I mean, we just on the top of my head have had at least four that I know of sure. uh, in South Africa. Um, so again, you know, it's, yeah. again, are we just uh, have better keeping records or not? We're going to discuss crimes committed predominantly by women, I imagine. Mm. Is, that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And we know that it takes a lot for a woman to get to the point of murder. A, a woman is not your typical murderer. It's far more common in men. So it's going to be very interesting to understand what drives a woman in particular to the point mm. where she's committing this kind of this kind of crime, which is which does defy logic for me right now. But I'm, yeah. I'm hoping by the end of the hour, we'll all have a better understanding of, of how it's possible that these kinds of um, crimes can take place. Where do caesarean kidnappings fit into the spectrum of child kidnappings? So where do yeah. we place it? So when we have missing children in general, um, 
kind of five categories. You talk about your non-family abduction, so a stranger who kidnaps a child for whatever reason. Then you have your family abductions, which is probably the most common people actually taking children as another family member, such as in a divorce case, father then takes the child without permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they get a bit older, runaways or throw away or abandoned children, and then children become lost and injured. And that's typically why we end up with missing kids. So this is kind of falling into your category of your sort of non-family uh, non-traditional kind of um, kind of a, a kidnapping or abduction of a child, and um, you know if you look in the United States from eighty three and I think ninety two, most infant kidnappings occurred from the maternity ward of of a hospital, okay. and then because of the sort of changes in security and attention around this issue, those dropped significantly. But they seem to be as if that might have caused a bit of an increase in the cesarean kidnapping that we're talking about okay. now, because you couldn't really steal a child from a hospital as easily. And I mean, we've had cases in South Africa where that's happened. I think Zephanie Nurse is one that was in the media quite recently where a child was taken from a hospital. Mm. Um, but as I said, we've also had about at least four of these sort of cesarean, cesarean kidnappings. So I, I gave the kind of the textbook just definition. Explain what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So it's essentially a person who decides uh, for whatever the underlying motive that they want a child. Um, and essentially what they do is they, they, they present this image that they themselves are pregnant. Um, what they do is of course, closer to the time they actually, that they would themselves be having been giving birth in this fake story. They then befriend or approach an individual, um, who is pregnant and would probably be giving birth at around that same time. And then ultimately they kill that or they attack that person, cut open their womb and remove the child. Now, 50% of the the victims, female, the adult victims survive mm-hmm. and 50% of the children survive. Mm-hmm. So it's not always that it ends up with the, with the, the, the death of the individual. Of course, they'd probably be charged with attempted murder sure. because of the nature of the, the, the sort of severe nature of the assault on the individual. Uh, but essentially, yeah, then they, they take that child and essentially carry on as if it's their own child. Are, are these crimes typically committed by of the incidents we're aware of, and in particular the South African incidents? Are these crimes typically committed by strangers or known known people? Very often, they had um, approached the the victim, so it wouldn't it be on the day that they suddenly look for a victim mm. to to go and and do this to? So many of them had approached the the mother, even sometimes up to a month or more, befriending them, having association with them, in the lead up to them actually being able to. Uh, decide on a particular day they're going to go and um, take the take the baby. Okay. So there is often a known history between the two, the suspect and the victim. For sure. I mean, uh, the immediate question that I want to kind of understand by the end of the episode is, I mean, I wouldn't even think of that, you know? So the, 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 <laughs> the psychology that gets a woman to the point where she is able to consider that as an option, are there any commonalities? Why? So essentially, there's there's not been large scale studies. So to look at sort of patterns in in suspects and and a sort of a typology or a you know a profile of these individuals is is very difficult because of that. So there's smaller studies like one done by Vernon Gebbeth, who's quite a well known um, ex New York Police Department detective. He looked at nine cases, and in his nine cases, they were all female, twenty to forty years of age. Eight of the nine in his study were acting alone. They faked their pregnancies, pre-selected the victims, and other studies have also shown that seventy five percent had met the mother beforehand. Um, four out of seven killed the victim at their home or attacked them at their home. Uh, and about 50% actually had their own kids. Uh, so it wasn't always as if they had were a person who themselves could not necessarily have children, which some people might assume was perhaps perhaps the default mm-hmm. position. Half of them actually were actually had their own children. Um, so they faked the pregnancy. Um, and yeah, I mean, ultimately, they're kind of, again, looking at why we think this happens. You know, one one hypothesis is it's about trying to cement that relationship with their partner, their, their male or female partner that they have, thinking that having this child will 
keep the relationship solid or keep the guy or keep the woman um, or to sort of fulfill this fantasy about you know childbearing and um, or, or the sort of role reward you get as being a parent. I mean, if you are a, an expectant mother or, or a, a mother of a newborn child, you get a lot of attention from society. Mm. You know, people give you up their seat on the bus for you. You know, people ask you when's your baby due. So it's also in a, in a sense is almost like this Munchausen syndrome by proxy where you get you fake something to get the attention. Are they mentally ill or are these people who are simply committing a crime for a, a societal, a cultural, a personal reason? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people almost assume there must be mental illness because this is so bizarre. Yeah. Um, but in reality, no. Uh, I think out of the, the, the four we had in South Africa that I have knowledge of, one was found to be uh, have mental Ill, mental health issues, and that was probably the first one we had in South Africa, which also might have contributed why they were more likely to say she's mentally ill because mm. – you know, I don't know if we'd have heard of it before that particular case. Yeah. Um, but in reality, most are not, even throughout the world. So they also, most upon arrest, they admit that they weren't pregnant. So it's not as if they had a delusional belief sure. that they were pregnant. Yeah. Um, and if you look at how they faked it, it's clearly that they knew they weren't pregnant because your stuff in your It's extremely stuff, premeditated. You know, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and like you say, they do it in a way that they try and get away with it and convince everybody. And it's over a long period. You know, this isn't just something happens over a day and, yeah. you know, a weak moment and you do something like this. This is this is sustained for months knowing one day what you're probably going to do at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and that, again, sort of counts towards it. We're more likely to think that there might be personality problems, um, you know, borderline personality disorder. But again, those don't render you unfit to to stand trial. And all of these yeah. in these cases and that I know in South Africa, that the offenders were sent for mental observation leading up to their trial or during their trial to assess precisely that fact as to whether they could be held accountable for what they did. Yeah. And again, this longstanding history leading up to it and the faking of it really counts against um, you know, sort of more the mental health issues or, or mm. uh, situations. So, um, not mentally, you're not not crazy in that sense. Although yeah. it is a very bizarre type of crime. Yeah. So, I think the best way for us to move forward in this conversation mm. is to dive into case studies. We've got two great case studies to talk about, both South African, both that you've uh, you worked directly on. Um, so that's what we'll pick up on in the second segment. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube, and please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. All you have to do is search Profiler, and you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa and join our Facebook group now. We do have some of the best investigators in the world on our team, so we know where to find you if you don't. Let's jump into some case studies. We've got two case studies to talk about. Um, the first being an incident that happened in Dawn Park. Mm. Um, so in this case, um, in in, uh, in Dawn Park, the suspect and, and the the deceased were were uh, were acquaintances. They knew each other. They didn't stay too far away uh, from each other. And the suspect arrived at the house of the victim at about twelve o'clock in the daytime, and they both sort of departed uh, the residence together. And she never came back. The, the victim. Um, but later that same day, the, the suspect returned with an infant, which she claimed that she had given birth. 
Okay, so again, I think they stayed literally about 100 meters down the road uh, from each other in that area. And then one stays sort of, again, in, in, in very informal type of scenario. And when you say known to each other, how known to each other? Friends? Um, are these two people that are, are hanging out together, having tea in the morning or what? I think it was more, they stayed in the same street, as I said, about 100 meters sort of down the road from each other. So I think it was more... Um, sort of an acquaintance type of, you know, you know each other from living in the street. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So not, not close, you know, buddies in that sense. Okay. Um, so she arrives home saying, oh, I had this baby. I gave to birth to her out in the felt. Um, and they, they then insist that she goes to hospital with the little baby. She was, of course, very reluctant to be examined mm. initially by the gynecologist. Um, and then who quickly determined, but this lady is absolutely no sign that this woman has just given birth, nor even being pregnant. And unfortunately, that infant was declared dead under the very sort of suspicious circumstances. So what happens then with the hospital just to contact contact the police? Yeah, she gave conflicting reports. I mean, she first said she'd given birth in a field. Then she said she'd given birth at a traditional healer's practice. And is then, this to an investigator, though? This is once the police are involved. Yeah, I think the initial bit telling about giving birth in the field was the hospital. And then okay. as the police got involved, etc., it was this giving birth at the traditional healer's practice. And then uh, the third sort of story she gave that she was lured with the deceased to the traditional healer's practice, whereupon the other people, other people killed the victim and then gave her the sort of baby and the body to further sort of dispose of, which again, you know, they did, there is a traditional healer in that area, which she pointed out. Mm. They went there. Um, they didn't really find anything that sort of corroborated her story at all. So okay. the, the traditional healer was never arrested. So I think it was, again, just trying to deflect her own responsibility yeah. and make it almost like she was a victim in this process. And kind of like we discussed in the three, in the Krikwistat case where the uh, offender is amending their story to fit mm. the information that is being presented yeah. to them through the course yeah. of an interrogation. And she was saying, you know, in this, when the traditional healer was there and these people were killing the ladies, they, she spoke that they stabbed her in the neck um, and okay. cut her neck, but the autopsy didn't reveal any uh, stab wounds. It was just the cut to the abdomen and the pressure to the neck from strangulation of some, or something similar. So again, that third story about the, the traditional healer and other people suddenly springing upon the two of them after being lured, both of them, to the house of the traditional healer, was, there was no um, forensic backing up. Uh, they, okay. of course, did the, 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 the crime scene check out with Luminol and or Blue Star to see if there's any cleaned up blood. And there was nothing that, that sort of corroborated that third, uh, the third option. Of the story. So the following day, a body was found. Yeah. So the body was found pretty much naked in a piece of felt. Literally, if you drew a line from the victim's house, the suspect's house, and you carried on along that road, and the road kind of almost ended up at, at, as, a, as a T junction and went on, in, you went on into the field as if the road had carried on. About 900 meters down from where the suspect lived was where the body was found, burnt out. You know, not particularly hidden, open piece of felt had, had been set on fire. So it really wasn't, you know, difficult to discover that body. It wasn't, they're not, there weren't major efforts made to. My to ongoing body. confusion about why, where if you've decided to, if you're a killer that knows you're going to kill someone or you've, you've premeditated that you're going to kill somebody. And here, this is extensive, like we said, mm. extensive premeditation. You do so much to build a story for yeah. up to nine months. And then you're just walking in a straight line from your house yeah. and committing the act continually I'm kind of like confused by the the lack of kind of following the logic yeah. through so the, to the, the, the point the, where the, I'm going to be smart yeah, about The this. major thinking goes up until the murder and then stops there. Exactly. Other ones did it inside, killed the victim in their own house yeah. and sort of stuffed the, the body in the dustbin, you know, and just yeah. in, as if, yeah, there's, there's not, I think in this particular case, the Dawn Park, she didn't have vehicles. So she's limited in how am I going to 
I've got to find a place to do this, then we'll get the lady there and do it. Or then if mm-hmm. I kill her, then I don't have to, I can't have too much of a distance to go to transport the body because how would I do that? Yeah. So that could be sort of practical reasons that for uh, sure, limit for sure. her. Yeah. Let's talk about where the where where she actually started, um, where the Dawn Park incident started. Mm-hmm. Um how extensive had her faking of the pregnancy actually been? Yeah, so she started about six months before the incident, telling her boyfriend that that she was pregnant. Um, and again, you don't know from day one that you're pregnant. So it's not uncommon, you know, a month goes by someone, you know, their menstrual cycle doesn't start, they go to the doctor. So, you know, six weeks into a pregnancy is often a time when people realize that they're actually pregnant. Um, he, the boyfriend says he did notice that her stomach had swelled. Uh, and then she got, she became more jealous as the, about him as the pregnancy proceeded. Um, he would, she would allegedly go to clinics for sort of checkups and he was really under the impression that she was pregnant due to all the physical changes that he was seeing uh, in, in her body at the time. Uh, the, the, the suspect had also purchased items such as baby clothes in preparation for the birth. Um, June 2013, she'd been to a traditional healer with her boyfriend because of the stomach pain she was having. And this traditional healer or prophet sort of confirmed, in inverted commas, her, her pregnancy status. So he was really sort of living under this sort of impression that yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to be a father that my my girlfriend's pregnant again. Who who doubts when their girlfriend or wife tells them that they're pregnant? Specifically, as it goes on on and on. Um, herself, she was a 24 year old, uh, a black female, unemployed, um, had been in a relationship for about two years, um, but had known her boyfriend for much longer than the two years that they they had been in a relationship. Um, after the incident, she denies faking the pregnancy. So it's faking the pregnancy. Tell us now, like the final stages then. Do we have a sense of what happened in the moment, where she disappeared from, where she was last seen, that kind of stuff? Yeah, essentially they were last seen, if I recall correctly, um, at a hair salon just down the road from where they both stayed. Um, I think they were actually going to go buy airtime or something like that. There was some excuse that they were going to go to a shop to get something. Okay. Uh, and then they sort of left and, and, and nobody saw them together. And nobody saw obviously the victim alive again thereafter. When the body was found, was there an immediate link i don't think so because if one looks at the at the at the crime scene pictures the body was quite badly burned at that point in time sure so the face was you know very difficult to see the yes. face facial features you know the skin was actually burnt away which is usually means that it was yeah. quite quite a bit on fire the fingerprints would have been difficult i think it probably would have taken a while uh, perhaps when they realized that this lady's gone to hospital with a child that's not hers mm. somebody realized hang on but the lady down the street has disappeared and she was pregnant hang on, we found a body. And yeah. literally I said it was now about 900 meters away from where they both stayed. And I think that kind of just everybody put those three three events together and realized, I think actually this lady might be mm. the mother of that child who has uh, disappeared. Any important information taken from the crime scene? It's from the murder scene itself. I mean, I noticed, I mean, having looked at the, at the, at the images, mm. that the body was, you know, kind of legs splayed, um, kind of in a, almost in a birth position. Yeah. Um, so yeah so again i'm not quite sure if it was determined if the way the body was found was where she was murdered again the felt around the body was quite burnt so okay. if there'd been blood spatter that would have been destroyed but what we also do know that bodies when they're in fire the the muscles the and tendons contract so they can be in completely different positions yeah. uh and very often they call it the pugilistic pose which is Look, they call it the boxer pose. Oh, okay. You know, as if a boxer in the olden olden days, you're standing mm, with your two yeah. sort of fists up, saying, "Let's, you know, let's fight it out." They go to that position, um, or they they arched in a particular way, and people think, "Oh my God, this person was alive when they were burnt." Because look, they they 
their bodies are contorted. And that's actually just the, the effects of the fire on the human body, um, which causes them to change position. So one should always be careful about kind of getting too far, um, yeah. specifically in a body that's quite bad. The burning would have been post-mortem. Yeah. No, yes. no, yeah. Was there any... Was there ever a consideration? So you've got two women here now, albeit one is pregnant. Was there ever a consideration that there was somebody that assisted her in this crime? Mm-hmm. I mean, they looked into the Sangoma issue and they just ruled that out completely. As okay, being, fine. You know, truth so no, not a thought that, that she might have had assistance in order to no. overpower this woman or what have you. Okay, so so they they put two and two together. They found the body. They've they've identified that it all lines up to this lady who's mm. arrived at hospital with a baby that has unfortunately died. Um, the court case. Let's talk about what yeah. happens when it goes to court. So essentially, she she pled guilty. Um, she was charged with two murders. Obviously, the, the 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 pregnant mother, and because they could prove that the baby had had breathed after being removed from the womb, it's regarded then as a, li- a living human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, if ironically, if the baby had died in the womb. Um, you wouldn't be able to charge her with a, a second murder. So I think we discussed this before. You know, if someone shoots a pregnant mother and the mother ch- dies, and obviously in the process the unborn child dies, that's not two times murder okay. because the unborn child is not yet a human being in terms is of the law. Is that standard all over the world? Uh, definitely South Africa. I'm not too sure in other parts of the world. It could it could be different. So in this case, they could show that the child actually had breathed, the lungs had worked, which is usually one of the sort of tests that they use. Um, there's, I don't want to go into the details of how they determined that, but they were able to determine that. So she was actually charged with two times murder, then kidnapping, because she obviously lured the, the the mother away under false pretenses, and defeating the, the course of justice by lying about what happened after things came up with the Sangoma story, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So she decided to to plead guilty, which obviously everybody appreciates. It takes a lot. Of, the court case often is an additional stressor on family members, et cetera. My report that I compiled was submitted as part of it. And the court eventually gave her um, 15 years for each of the two murders, and it was 15 years plus 15 years. Uh, for the kidnapping, if I recall correctly, she got uh, one year. Um, and, and again, the way they structured it is that she would then um, basically serve about 20 years. Okay. So they staggered the sort of the, 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 the sentences that she'll serve about 20 years. Okay. Right now, is she just locked up? Yeah. We, do we do we sit down and talk to her? Is there are there is there research done on on her? I mean, she's a one of a very small group of people yeah. in around the world. So I mean, again, it would from a you know correctional services is not allowed to do research on offenders really. So okay. you know, for example, I have some psychologists who work in the prisons and who want to do, for example, their doctoral studies. They can't even do their doctoral studies on people in the prison where they work. They'd have to go to a different prison. Um, again, just uh, they can be seen as manipulative human rights abuses. And of course, anybody has has to give the consent to participate. So when I did my master's and doctorate research on serial murder, I went into the prisons, got consent for from correctional services after the university approved my research. And then, of course, ultimately the individual can decide whether or not they want to participate. So there wouldn't be as a standard course of action, sort of research into this thing to understand why it happened, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so probably she's just in prison. Um, there's no mandatory psychological counseling uh, in the process usually. So it would be pretty much up to her if she wants to see someone. And kind of really, we don't know enough about this to really know how do we rehabilitate someone to yeah. say that we have a good chance that it won't happen again because it's just so incredibly rare. I look forward to the um, category of crime where you don't have like way more experience than like 90% of cops all over the world mm-hmm. and psychologists around the world. Um, but we're not in that case today. So after the break, let's let's look at another case that you worked on of cesarean kidnapping. We're going to travel to 
Kumsras in Randfontein. Um, you can tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You just have to search Profiler. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa is our handle and join our Facebook group now. Like I said, we can find where you live. South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. Today, we are talking about caesarean kidnappings, also known as fetal abductions. These involve the forced removal by means of a crude caesarean section of an unborn child from the mother's body. We've got a second case study to, to, to discuss. Take us to Tukomsras, Gerard. Yeah, I, I find this case really, really fascinating for, and for a number of reasons. Um, we have so much evidence of how she, the elaborate sort of ruse she went to into fakiness. Again, this is where social media works in our favor because she posted so much of this on her Facebook page. You know, there was, you know, various things she did with, with at her place of work when she told them that she was pregnant. So there's such a, a really, even a more sophisticated than the previous case we discussed now, far more sophisticated um, method of, of sort of, um, faking this whole this whole story that we have evidence of after the fact. So I, that's why I find this particular case even the, one of the most fascinating out of all the ones that I've had to deal with of this nature. I agree, Gerard. This is an incredible example of how elaborate you can get with this kind yeah. of crime and how, how absolutely incredibly premeditated this was. So just tell us the story of the crime right up to the murder itself, or right up to the to the to the abduction. Yeah. Um yeah. with the pregnancy. So like I said, this was really fascinating because there was so much evidence of how, and, and sophisticated evidence of how she faked her pregnancy. You know, she had a fake doctor's notes, uh, doctor's note that's, you know, said she's pregnant, how far she is and the de delivery date, which she gave to her employer. Um, they, they afterwards did a forensic analysis of her work computer and, and located where she typed out this little fake sick note to herself. Um, because the doctor, it was, it was a real doctor's name and I think practice number. Okay. Uh, it turned out to be a doctor in KwaZulu-Natal. Remember, this case is up here in Gauteng province. And this doctor did, I mean, it was, he never treated her. He didn't know her at all. So mm -hmm. she obviously just somehow came across this guy's practice details. Um, um, the doctor's phone number was linked to a private home in Pretoria. So again, she's taking bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And she'd actually been on maternity leave from a, from December of 2011 prior to this taking place. Her, it, her, it speaks to a confidence yeah. that she's going to get away with it. Yeah. Because again, I would start thinking at this juncture that, look, if I ever get caught for this thing, I'm leaving a paper trail, which is problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, her, her employer held a baby shower for her and there's pictures, I think we can perhaps post some of them, yeah. of her having this nice, you know, fun baby shower at the place of work. She posted a lot of stuff on Facebook, um, messages, et cetera, you know, in December of that, of 2011, about she's at home, you know, swollen feet, back pain, can't wait for the baby to come, wishing everybody a happy new year's, et cetera. May your dreams come true. 
you know, just what you'd expect from a, from a pregnant individual. Mm. Um, Which gives you a sense, and we were talking about it earlier, this idea that there's an opportunity, that one of the motivations is potentially that you want, that there's a need for this baby to hang on to a man or family social mm. pressure, et cetera. But then this idea of relishing the attention and Absolutely. relishing the, the, the idea and the, yeah, the attention that comes with a pregnancy. You know, it's about, again, posts about her swollen feet and can't wait to hold the precious baby in her arms. And this, this long ode in October of 2011, this ode to her unborn baby, you know, love mommy. Um, and people's responses. If you look at the responses of, of her friends on Facebook, it's, you know, oh, this is so sweet. I got tears in my eyes. How, how you know, I, I love my baby. Thanks so much for that comment. Um, you know, and, and perhaps because she was maybe a bit more in, a, in an upper socioeconomic group compared to the, the other lady we described, described from Dawn Park, who was unemployed, living almost sort of in an informal settlement kind of environment. Um, whereas Loretta, who had access to a computer, et cetera, a bit more sophisticated than how she faked it. Um, she had a matric. Yeah, there's no indication that she looked up how to perform a cesarean section, you know, in her Google searches. She had tertiary education. Well, you know, matric, tertiary diplomas, data typist for a company in, in Centurion, Pretoria. Wasn't earning a lot, about 4,000 rand, which is, you know, just $350 US yeah. maybe. She was 29 years old at the time. Um, and, you know, I spoke to her employer who described her as a very nice individual, you know, a decent worker, etc., uh, etc. Et so, again, it's not what you would expect. She was living with her parents at the time that she was on her maternity leave. No, no previous convictions for any criminal behavior. And, again, had been in a relationship for about two years uh, prior to the incident, which is ironic if we think that the, the Dawn Park lady had also been in her relationship for two years. Mm. Is that something when we might see if we studied more cases that a two-year period is, yeah. you know, when these things typically would happen? And again, the, the seemingly good, strong relationship with her boyfriend, uh, he refused to be interviewed. Uh, he had, she had told her boyfriend already in May, April of 2011 that she was pregnant. So heading towards December, when she really kind of came out with this in the social media stuff, October, November, she would have been in that phase quite, quite far along in her fictitious pregnancy. He never went with her to the doctor. If I recall correctly, he didn't live with her. He lived in, I think, Potchefstroom, which is maybe about an hour or so away from where she was staying. And he also said, you know, she's, she was generally just a large woman, so it's not really easy to see if she's pregnant. Yeah. Um, he just noticed that her feet were swelling. Yeah. I mean, there's that rule. I mean, one of the things that plays into the hands of these kinds of crimes is there's that rule, never ask a woman if she's pregnant. Exactly. So, it, it, you, you know, it is one of those crimes that you could understand how easy it is to get away she with says it. She is, you know, you don't go around doubting women that when they say they're pregnant. Yeah. And no matter how skinny they look, you know, no. nobody doubts. And why would you doubt it? Why would you? Exactly. Um, so she was ultimately assessed by a team of experts uh, at the forensic hospital because she was referred for observation purposes and she was found fit to stand trial. Um, uh, up and, and she was obviously then put on trial. Sure. Um, do we know how she identified the victim? What was her relationship with the victim? How did she identify the victim? Yeah, you know, they actually stayed about 150 meters from each other, you know, very close. I mean, if you look at a sort of a map of the area, it's literally one turn, two turns, but, and 150 meters in between the two of them. So we're not quite sure exactly. I think it was, again, more someone you know by association, which if you think about it, um, you know, is it easier to kill someone you know very well versus someone you sort of know? And I suppose if you're going to choose, you might choose someone who you don't have too much of a close association with because it would make it difficult. You know, you can't choose the person you hate because you've still got to lure them uh, and take their child. You know, would you want to take 
adopt a child as someone you absolutely hate or someone you couldn't lure back to with you under false pretenses to wherever you're going to commit this act. You know, your enemy is not going to probably go with you. So I think it's perhaps logical that you find someone you know, but you don't really know too well. Yeah. To be able to know what you're going to ultimately do makes it perhaps a little bit psychologically yeah. easier. Where was the, well, and if it's, and someone you know well enough that you can get a sense of their routine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where was the actual body found or, or where was the crime committed? Yeah, at where was the actual murder? Loretta's parents' house. So she okay, was lured the there. House. If I recall correctly, it was under the auspices of giving her a pram or some, some things for her baby. Okay. Um, you know, and the, 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 the victim was an unemployed lady. I think she was 34 years old herself. This was, I think her third or fourth child. Mm. Um, so again, obviously anybody offering her some, you know, uh, some free, free baby stuff, gear. Baby, yeah. baby gear would definitely be welcome. Yeah, she had three previous children, three children with her with her boyfriend, um, and one from previous relationships. So actually, four children already, and now the fifth little one, uh, little one on its way. So the crime has taken place in the house. How is this? How does this this incident come onto the radar of the police? Retrospectively, what they found out that she, the victim, was seen walking uh, at about eleven o'clock in the daytime towards the the offender's house, which, as mm-hmm. I said, she was staying with her parents at the time she committed this. Told to come and collect or some clothes. Uh, and about an hour later, 12 o'clock, um, Loretta phones her mom and says, you've got to come home urgently. So mom kind of was thinking maybe there's something wrong with the child, um, you know, etc. So the mom comes home, finds um, a baby in the passage, um, but the suspect, Loretta, was nowhere to be seen. Baby alive? The baby was alive. Okay. The victim's body was ultimately lo- located outside uh, near a dustbin. Uh, clothes, her feet were tied with the sort of brown material. Um, later, the, the offender Loretta was found and quote unquote unconscious in a, yes. in a locked room, in an outside room uh, behind the parents' uh, house where the crime was committed. And they sort of broke down the door to get access to Loretta. So the mom comes home. No, nowhere is Loretta to be found, although Loretta phoned her to come and help. She Mom finds a baby in the passage. Um, and eventually they find Loretta, you know, she looks at the window, finds Loretta and uh, a dead lady literally lying outside of a dustbin uh, with now, her legs tied. Now, we'll post a photo of the uh, blood spatter. Um, so, we, so we assume that the actual kidnapping took place inside. Yeah. So how is her body found outside? She actually tried to put her into, she did put her in a dustbin, one of these municipal black bin dustbins that ever lived in the wheelie okay. bin. Um, and the, um, the, the what do you call the rubbish removal people? It was too heavy to be picked up, so they actually pushed it back into the yard. So I think her plan was to use the dustbin, the, the rubbish removal people, to actually dispose of the body. So she put him in the a typical municipal yeah. black dustbin yeah. with the thought that this dustbin that the bo- I mean the body is then just going to flop into the back of the dustbin van. Yeah. I mean I, I don't I don't mean to I'm just these the, the logic boggles my mind. You've spent nine months creating this 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 story on on social media in your life. You've had a baby shower at work, and you're going to dispose of the body in a in a municipal dustbin. And the machine, and this was at half past twelve, so this happened very quickly. You know, this whole process. Yeah. Um, but the the machine, the the dustbin's lifter couldn't actually pick up this dustbin because obviously it was very heavy with the human body lying inside of it. So when the mother was, so so uh, we don't know what happened then getting the dustbin back inside the property, how her body was found outside the dustbin. Okay. Okay. So I think the the, the plan unraveled. It was, there was no plan B really. Exactly. So so her so her may her plan B on the spot was 
somebody else did this and I'm a victim that got locked in the room and knocked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially the baby, the, so in other words, the grandmother of the baby or the, the, the mother of, of the offender sort of arrives, finds the baby, you know, the baby gets t- taken to the hospital by the grandmother thinking this is, this is her grandchild. Mm. Um, the baby's assessed, the placenta, which, uh, which, which assessed by the staff and the baby had a 10 centimeter cut on the right hand side above the ear. Okay. Which also, I mean, you know, if you yes. gave birth, how do you end up with a 10 centimeter cut on that little baby? That's a massive cut on yes, a little baby. Yes. And of course, that's one of the dangers. You're cutting the baby out. Yes. If you don't know how to cut, you know, you're not a proper doctor doing a cesarean yeah. in a careful, cautious way. A cesarean is not 26 centimeters. It's not a 26 centimeter yeah. wound yeah. <laughs> by any means. Um, and while at the clinic, it becomes known that the victim's body was now found. Uh, and that the victim, the suspect, Loretta, was found in the locked room. And now, of course, now saps are called out because this is course, now yeah. what the hell oh, happened yeah. here. Um, and then it was first thought that she had given birth, that the deceased victim, the deceased victim had been given birth at the house and died of natural causes. So actually, originally, the, the cops did a bit of a bugger up because they didn't realize that there's a big gash on this okay. woman's stomach. Yes. And it was really only at the autopsy when the doctor said, um, you guys do know there's a massive cut here on the stomach. Uh, and this couldn't have been a natural birth. Okay. So again, now they realize, uh-oh. And the take case gets handed over by some more sort of advanced um, investigators. So essentially, I mean, the, the, the razor blades were recovered at the scene, which were then forensically linked to the victim okay. in terms of the DNA blood yes. on, the, on the razor blades. And the cause of death was penetrating incision across the lower abdomen with the removal of the uterus, which 26 centimeter long. Tell us a little bit then about her interrogation, about, okay, they've made the link now. They've identified that this is a murder. Then interrogation. Anything anything noteworthy come out of that process? Well, basically, you know, if we look at what happened in terms of the court case, she pleaded not guilty. Okay. And she said she had no recollection. She has no idea what happened, that she had passed out. Uh, she denied that the doctor's note was written by her, which, of course, from a, the computer analysis, they were able to prove it was. Um, so, again, just like, again, the most unsophisticated denial is to say, I don't remember anything. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You know, there's no fancy story to it. Not even like the other lady we discussed previously in Door Park, where she had sort of a Sangoma story, you know. Yes. She just, Loretta just said, I don't know, don't know what happened. So what was she sentenced to? Yeah, so ultimately she got uh, life for the murder um, of, because of, obviously the premeditated nature of this crime, you would, the Minimum Sentences Act would say that you should get uh, get get life for that. Sure. We have one more um we have one more case study to jump into before we kind of wrap up this discussion. And it took place in Mitchell's Plain. And this is an interesting case because the mother survived. Tell us briefly about this case mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I think this, like I said, I think the, the, the subject is best illuminated through case studies. Yeah. So so just briefly, this this was the first case that I'm aware of in South Africa where we had a cesarean kidnapping. Uh, and this was in 2000, March 2000. And the, 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 the offender lured the victim to her residence uh, tells her to sit in a bed, says, I've got a surprise for you. Let me blindfold you. Ends up handcuffing her and basically sort of says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, if you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to, or I'm going to take your baby. Um, basically then starts to use scissors to actually cut open um, the victim's stomach. Uh, the, the baby comes out alive. She then sort of tells the, 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 the victim to breastfeed the baby um, and then essentially leaves um, with the person, with the victim, they both leave, you know, so she helps the mother get her insides kind of back into her stomach, literally. And they leave Then she, the suspect puts the baby in her backpack. Um, they walk out to an open piece of felt. So again, you kind of wonder, you know, 
I suppose it's, were you going to then kill her out in the felt? Yeah. Um, was that your sort of big plan? But you've got a lady with a massive scar, mm. cut wound open to her stomach. She then, the victim passes out in the felt and the suspect says, get up or I'm going to kill you. Um, she then stabs the victim in the breast with a knife. She then hears people coming and basically gets sort of frantic now at this point in time, stabs her again in the chest. Um, the victim screams at the passersby who come to her aid and the suspect flees with the baby in the backpack. Um, as the bystanders get there, she says, listen, but this lady attacked me and took my child. Um, the boys, the young boys gave chase and actually recovered the baby. Um, and then um, later that night, the, the uh, suspect went to the police station to report that her friend had been attacked by five gang ma- members and had given her the child. So again, a bit of a twist saying okay. she and her friend were walking, attacked by gang members. Um, gang members then gave her the child and now she's coming to report this incident. So it's kind of, again, a almost very pathetic way of trying to sort of uh, fake this. Yeah. Now they had met um, at a pregnancy clinic, the suspect okay. and the victim. Um, the victim was 16 years old. So she was very, very young at this mm-hmm. time. Uh, the son survived as, as did she. And, um, the son is healthy. As far as we know, there was a follow-up a, a year or two ago about this. Uh, she of course doesn't really want to ever talk about this particular case. Yeah. Uh, the offender was 10 years older than her, 26 years at the time, had been a member of the Namibian police. Um, okay. she'd been living at the particular crime scene for about seven months, which is really a, a, a garage converted into a room, uh, with her boyfriend, um, the offender living there for, yeah. for a number of months. Um, She'd been too tested and not pregnant, uh, for not being pregnant by a doctor after she had abdominal pains. Uh, ultrasound had revealed nothing in the abdomen. Shortly before the incident, um, she had actually apparently miscarriage. So again, this was sometimes we do have incidences where the the, the, the suspect was actually pregnant, okay. miscarriages, and almost then continues to with the fake with with now faking the, the rest of the pregnancy. Okay. Um, so yeah, so she was uh, one of the persons she was found, um, which gives uh, maybe gives you a more clear sense in this case of the motivation. Yeah, because I'm sure you don't have um, her a, a very good explanation from her as to why. Yeah. But this tends to imply that there was an expectation here yeah, that there was going to be a child, and she just had to continue with that pregnancy, whatever yeah. whatever it took. And again, she had read up how to cut an umbilical cord from a first aid book she borrowed from. Um, her, you know, landlady. So again, this and pre-planning, perhaps not amount. as elaborate as Loretta yeah. Cook, but definitely pre-planning. She was sent for mental observation and found unfit to stand trial. Okay. Um, and now about three years after being declared a state patient, she was released. Okay. Um, attained a job as a security guard. And at that time, there was a lot of uh, security guard riots. I think there were a lot of security guard companies were going on strike. Okay. And actually she was shot and killed herself. Wow. Three years after this uh, incident. I mean, you could call that a little bit of karma, maybe. Mm. Um, I mean, I, we'll post a photograph of the wound itself. I mean, it just is incredible the, you know, the the the, the, the fact that this woman is is being led out mm. into the felt, put literally. Put, I mean, the fact that the, the 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 suspect literally helped the woman put her organs back mm. in her body is incredible. And so, with scissors, I mean, she used scissors to actually yeah. extract this baby. It's crazy uh, that we've got some really nice material on this on this case as well on all of these three cases to look at on our social media pages. So please do go and look at um, some of the uh, some of the the additional media from from the actual crime reporting and some of the crime 
freelancing, photography, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Gerard, what, I mean, cesarean kidnapping, I never knew it existed. Now I do. Um, what is the, what is the big takeaway from this conversation today? What, these aren't crimes we can identify and present and, and prevent up front. Mm. They are interesting, rare crimes. I mean, I don't even know where to place them. I don't even know how you would draw conclusions or draw value out of these cases to improve our ability to identify or deal yeah. with these types of crimes. You know, again, this is one of those things that's, it's pregnancy is such a sensitive topic. We're never, I mean, unless you literally go and yourself conduct a pregnancy test on every single female, there's only way you're going to, you know, find out if someone's lying about it. So it's really just, it's so rare and, and, and you can't prevent it. Um, hopefully you just catch it and hopefully the baby survives and the mother survives. You know, yeah. that's kind of the best we can hope for uh, yeah. out of this actual scenario. Yeah. And, and it goes to show that like when women do commit murder, I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of the reason, maybe some of the reason that women aren't as prevalent as when it comes to murder as men are, is that it, it seems to take so much more mm. for a woman to get to the yeah. point where she wants to commit these kinds mm. of crimes or is always driven to commit. Yeah. Uh, and like I said earlier, it's just almost this juxtaposition of wanting to nurture a little life, but the process taking another life. Yeah. Uh, and most murders are about anger and hatred towards the victim, even if it's fleeting anger and hatred towards the victim. Um, but this isn't motivated by this death to, of the mother is not motivated by anger towards them or hatred towards the mother. Yeah. So it's just, it's again, yeah. such a violent crime without at all remotely what we normally see linked to a, a murder, which yeah, is yeah. anger and or, yeah. you know. Um, as a profiler, as a psychologist, as a former cop, I mean, there's got, you've got to, these, these have to be compelling cases mm. just because they're so curious. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get to, to get interact with another case like this again in my life. So they are absolutely fascinating because it's just so not, you know, it's not the normal hatred or anger, anger yeah. towards a group of people or a particular person that we see in so many, even psychologically motivated crimes. And like I said, it's, it's the total juxtaposition of you wanting to nurture something and love it, but in that process, you're prepared to commit the complete opposite of it, which is to kill another person. Um, and that's just, just, again, just, just from a psychological point of view, just absolutely fascinating. But like I said, something that most people will never, ever have to have any involvement when from an investigation point of view, because they just are so absolutely rare. Absolutely. Guys, we hope that you, we have enlightened you a little bit as to what a cesarean kidnapping is and um, empowered you to avoid it happening to you or anyone you know. Chances are it won't, thank goodness. Um, we'll be back next week uh, as we continue to discuss uh, serious and serial crime in South Africa. What I'm finding over the course of the series is the great array and diversity of serious and violent crimes that we're discovering. You know, we started this journey with a, a personal curiosity of mine around serial killers, and it's just expanding to so much more. Um, you know, not just not just the crimes themselves, but the the the, the political and the social and the societal um, um, factors that 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 influence um, that influence all of these crimes as well. So it's great to be continuing this conversation, and we really would love you to share uh, the podcast with your friends. Um, get them to have a listen. There's a bunch of episodes up online now, so you can you can binge watch the heck out of them. So please do go onto our various pages and, and engage with us. And again, if there are specific topics that you'd like to discuss with us, if there are particular stories that you'd like Gerard to discuss and unpack, if there are particular guests that you'd like us to speak to, then please do go ahead and uh, get in touch. 
Uh, we're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Please subscribe to our page on YouTube. And you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa is the handle. Thank you, Gerard. My pleasure as always. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening and pleasant dreams. <laughs>